Hey all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren, I'm your host, and today we have a guest that's been on before, Mr. Jason Logsdon. He is an author of several sous vide books, runs the Exploring Sous Vide Facebook group, and the website Amazing Food Made Easy. We're going to discuss sous vide basics for all of you who may have gotten a sous vide for Christmas. I'll be right back with Jason Logsdon. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling from fire and water. Hey all, before we get on to the show, I want to talk to you for a second about Instacart. Instacart's a great service that allows you to do all your grocery shopping online. And they can get you your groceries in as fast as one hour. They connect you with personal shoppers in your area that know your markets. And they can get them from your favorite stores. They find all the great buys and smart suggestions for you online to save you money. They pick the freshest produce. And they check your eggs and make sure they're not cracked. Check them out, guys. Instacart is offering free delivery on your first order of over $35 on the link below. Check them out. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. My name is Darren. I'm your host, of course. And we have today a special guest. He's been on before. He is Jason Logsdon of Amazing Food Made Easy. He has the uh, Amazing Food Made Easy website. He has written several books on sous vide. He has courses on sous vide online. And uh, he is also uh, part of the International Sous Vide Association. He is one of the... Uh, I think he's the president. Are you the president, Jason? I believe that's my title. That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Jason, uh, welcome. And just go ahead and give a brief introduction of who you are and where you live and all that again. Oh, thanks a lot for having me on. I always have a great time coming and chatting sous vide with you. As you said, I, I've been write, or writing about sous vide for quite a while now, have a bunch of cookbooks out, some video courses to mainly around helping people understand sous vide and kind of get up to speed. There's a uh, a mind sh a mindset shift that has to happen. I feel when you start with sous vide, and I try to help people make that shift. And it takes sous vide from being something complicated to something that's easy and cranks out consistent results. So that's what I focus on. I live in Brooklyn, so if anyone's in New York, drop me a message, and we can go grab a drink sometime. Uh, Darren did that last time he was in, which was a great time. So that's me in a nutshell. Great. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to put links below to your website, to uh, some of your books, and also to the uh, beginner's course that you have um, that they can uh, sign up for online that really walks them through some of the stuff we're going to talk about. So let's start off with some uh, basic uh, premise, you know, just the basics of what sous vide is, because I know the holidays, holidays just went by, and I'm sure a lot of people got sous vide circulators for Christmas, and some of them probably have no idea what to do with them. I know a lot of people, you know, they think it's just another, you know, kitchen gadget like a George Foreman grill or an Instapot. And one of the things I like to do is show people how it's not. It's more, it can do a lot more. It's a method. It's not just a gadget. And um, there's so much I can do. So let's just talk about what is sous vide. Everybody goes, what's sous vide? I don't know. What, I've never heard of sous vide before. <laughs> the way I like to describe it is that it's low temperature precision cooking. So if you cook something on a grill, the grill is 500 degrees, 800 degrees, 1,000 degrees, and you put on a, a nice strip steak, and you want that strip steak to get to be 130 degrees for medium rare. 
And so you have to monitor it on that grill that's cooking it at 800 or 1,000 degrees. And as soon as that middle hits the temperature you want, you have to pull it off before it gets overcooked and ruins the steak. Sous vide takes the other approach that if you want that steak cooked to medium rare at 131 degrees, you heat it at 131 degrees. So you never run into the issues of overcooking the, the meat to a doneness that you're not trying to achieve. And for something like a strip steak that isn't that hard to cook on a grill and it's you know not that hard to cook sous vide, there's less benefits than a few of the other really cool things you can do by being able to maintain that temperature. Some of my favorites are doing a chuck roast that you can cook at 131 degrees for about 36 hours, and it comes out tasting almost like a ribeye, but you're paying chuck roast prices. You can also do a lot of desserts and custards that normally you would cook them in the oven with some a water bath in there, trying to maintain the temperature and not burn them and not ruin the custard. With sous vide, you can heat them to the proper temperature you want and leave it there for as long as you want to really help the custards gel and um, set. So there's a lot of fun things you can do with sous vide that you can't do with pretty much any other cooking method. Yeah. And that that's kind of my point to everybody is that it's not a, a sous vide. I got a sous vide for Christmas. It is sous vide is actually a, even though the, the words itself sous vide means under vacuum or under pressure, it, it really is a method of cooking which is in a water bath at an exact temperature for um you know pretty much it's in a water bath because water is a much better you know uh, conductor of heat than air is i mean the the package that you you have in the water is actually going to the heat's going to transfer into the uh the protein or whatever you're cooking a lot easier than if you were cooking in an oven in the air or in a pot or what have you uh, the analogy I always use for that is if you're baking cookies, you'll be cooking them at 350 degrees and you'll open up the oven and reach in and pull out the the cookie sheet and the inside of the oven's 350 degrees. But it, because the air doesn't transfer energy very efficiently, you're not going to burn yourself if you just do it relatively quickly. But if you're making pasta at uh, boiling water at you know 200 degrees, you're it's a lot lower temperature, but you're not going to reach your hand into the pot to pull out a piece of pasta to see how it is because you'll burn yourself almost instantly. And that's the difference in how how much energy can be transferred between air and water, that water is just so much more efficient that it really speeds up cooking times and results in a lot more even cooking. Yeah, and that's that's why you can use the lower temperatures and, and the longer times because of that, because the heat is transferred so, so much more efficiently, and you can control it a lot better uh, than any other cooking method that it, it makes it that way. One of the analogies that you, you had mentioned you know, uh, a second ago about how um, when you're cooking normally you know, on, a, on a grill or in an oven, that uh, you know, you're cooking at a lot hotter temperature that you want your food to actually end up. And one of the things that, you know, Meathead Goldwyn had him on and the analogy he uses a train, you know, going to the station, you know, with regular cooking, you're, you're trying to jump off the train while it passes the station <laughs> when it's going a hundred miles an hour and, and try to hit the station, which you're, it's hard, hard to do that because you got to time it just perfect. But with sous vide, 
you know, pretty much the train is going so slow, you can just walk right off the train and, and get right to the door of the station without having to worry about, you know, it going past it or, or what have you. So, I mean, that's kind of the analogy that I like to use when I try to try to tell people what exactly sous vide can do. Cause that's the whole thing was what makes it different than everything else. Well, it's that exact temperature that you can hit especially like with steaks, people like to, you know, think it can only do steaks, but it does steaks perfect because of that, because you can hit medium rare perfectly without having to try to time it just right. You know? Yeah. I've been cooking for a long time and I can cook most, you know, normal proteins on a grill or pan fry them and I can do a pretty good job. But especially if I'm using a little bit higher quality meat or something I've spent a decent amount of money on, I'm always, I don't do it enough that I'm always a little nervous. I'm always, you know, hovering, making sure that's going to come out. And if it's slightly overcooked, I'm, you know, a little disappointed. And sous vide removes all of that fear from cooking. And I think that's one of the most interesting parts of it, that it can give you the confidence to know that your food is going to come out perfectly cooked every single time. And when you're cooking for family or if you're having people over for a party, that peace of mind is so valuable and you just you know you're going to look good and that really helps at least me really enjoy the the cooking experience yeah and, and that's one thing too i gotta you know people don't understand you know sous vide especially if you're cooking a protein like a steak or a roast it's more of a two-stage cooking because you want that sear you have to sear it to uh, kind of finish it to get the maillard reaction the you know the caramely cr- caramelized crust that everybody likes but um, so you can actually overcook it if you take it in and oversear it. If you, you're not cooking it, you know, not searing at a hot enough temperature and you leave it on too long. But, you know, you do want that. You want to finalize it. So sometimes, you know, getting that sear down just right is also important. So uh, people just need to know, yeah, usually on something like that, you're doing a two-stage cook. Uh, you don't have to, but, um, you know, to make, you know, a steak uh, taste better, you're going to want to get that uh, Maillard reaction on yeah, it. Yeah, I feel like with sous vide, there's a lot of things you can do to continue to add flavor to what you're, whatever you're cooking. And I think it's important to realize, you know, why are you cooking something? And if I have a nice piece of steak that I'm having a celebratory dinner with my wife, I'll you know, make sure that I chill it a little bit first. I'll put a really hard sear on it. I'll go through a lot more steps where if I'm eating a chicken breast, I'm going to cut up with a stir fry for lunch, that it's just something that is sustenance, not a celebratory meal. A lot of times I won't sear it. I won't worry about doing a lot of the additional steps because I'm just looking for quick and easy food. And I think that's one of the things that sous vide is really good at is that it separates it makes it easier to separate these steps that you can have perfectly cooked food that you don't have a great sear on. You're not doing fancy things with for normal food prep, or you can use that exact same process to result in something that's going to be some of the best ever protein that you've cooked like that. Exactly. So let's get into the basics too. So uh, what does a circulator, a sous vide circulator or a, a, a dedicated sous vide bath actually do? What is what what makes that different than anything else in the kitchen? So what it does is it holds the water with sous vide. If you really don't know anything about sous vide, the way that sous vide works is that you take whatever you want to cook, you put it into a container, usually food heat safe plastic bags. But you can use mason jars for a lot of different things, and there are silicon bags that some people use. You put that in a water bath. 
um, basically a container of water, and that water is held to a specific temperature. So the sous vide device, the circulator or the water bath, maintains a specific temperature. That's that's its entire job. If you think of an oven, an oven usually fluctuates by, depending on your oven, about 25 to 75 degrees as it turns on and off. And there's these wide temperature swings, which when you're roasting a chicken, doesn't really matter. But for something like sous vide that you need these very precise temperatures, the sous vide machines are built to, most of them stay within about half a degree of the target temperature and some go down to a tenth of a degree. So it's pretty impressive, the technology. It came out of uh, medical labs where they had to keep blood samples and plasma samples at a very specific body temperature so they wouldn't go bad. And they moved that technology into the kitchen to make delicious food. Yeah, I mean, I've read some of the history of um, how these came about, um, especially, I mean, they've been doing it since the 70s, you know, uh, Dr. Uh, Gusto, you know, kind of discovered it and was playing around with it back in the 70s, but it really didn't start kicking kicking into gear <clears throat> until they started realizing that they had equipment already that they could use to uh get these exact temperatures and they started, like you said, using the laboratory equipment. One of the things that I think, you know, people nowadays will look at some of the circulators and stuff and they'll want the Wi-Fi control and the timers, you know, that does have, you know, most of them do have a timer on it and that timer is not really there. You know, it's not that important. You don't really need it, but it's there for more convenience, just like with the Wi-Fi control and the Bluetooth control. The most important thing about a sous vide circulator is it does maintain that temperature and circulates the water because part of the way that it keeps that water at that exact temperature is circulating that water through the heating element that's in the device, right? Yeah, that's correct. The The um, circulation definitely helps a lot and it keeps it a lot more even in the bath. Uh, I think Crea did some studies on that showing how how the circulation is, is actually pretty important. Yeah. And, um, exactly. And that's, um, one of the things that I, you know, people, like I said, they get all caught up now in the, uh, all the different features that, uh, you know, a device may have like with the Wi-Fi and stuff, but those are all nice and, and good to have a lot of times and they can help you monitor your cook from afar if you need to and all that and start your device. Like, you know, if you use an ice bath, and you want to start your device at work, you know, you can do that. They make it um, a little bit more easy to use and functional. But the most important part of that is keeping that temperature uh, to that exact temperature. So what type of container do people need to have with, uh, with this? When people get started, there's a lot of different things that can go into sous vide cooking and a lot of accessories from containers and lids to vacuum sealers and what I like to say is if you're interested in just trying sous vide, you're just getting started, keep it as simple as you can. You can sous vide in a normal stock pot with using some saran wrap as a lid to just put over the top to prevent evaporation. And you can do it in Ziploc freezer bags are heat safe bags. So you can do it without buying any additional equipment outside of a circulator. The, you know, the circulator is important and you can get them for $80, you know, $100, depending what brand you're looking at. So it's, you can do a lot of the sous vide without needing all these kind of accessories. 
I love my container, and uh, I know Innova makes a container that's supposed to be pretty good. If Cole's listening, send me one to test Cole. I would love to get my hands on one. But um, those are really nice to have, and they make the process easier. Once you've used sous vide a little bit, and you're like, okay, this is something that I want to do more of, then I think you can spend a little bit more money getting a, a dedicated container and getting a nice cutout lid that goes with the circulator and you know maybe getting a food saver style edge vacuum sealer, and you can start upgrading some of your components. But to get started, you can really do it in a, a large pot. I've done it in a plastic storage container for a short cook. I ran out of containers when I was teaching a, a sous vide class at my house. I had eight baths going and I only had seven sous vide containers. So I did it in just a normal plastic storage container, which doesn't work well long term. But for a short term cook with a little class, it worked well. But you can just use stuff that you have on hand to get into the process and explore it a little bit before you commit a lot of money. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really like to do. I don't like to spend a lot of money right off the bat on something that I don't know I'm going to like. I've, I've done that with, you know, grills, you know, um, when I went to a Kamado-style ceramic grill from a regular, um, you know, charcoal Weber grill. You know, I bought something that was kind of similar, like it's called an acorn, and it's made out of metal, and it's a lot cheaper than, you know, getting a Kamado Joe or a Big Green Egg. I, I got something a little cheaper that um, is similar that I could try to work on and see if I like that type of grill. And then, of course, you know, after I discovered I did, I went ahead and bought the big thing. But I tell people all the time on sous vide, it's the same way. Buy yourself a cheap, you know, $50, $60 circulator that, you know, keeps the temperature. Use a stock pot or something, you know, a cheap container, you know, to start off with. And then down the road, if you decide hey, I like this method of cooking, I, I want to do more of it, then, you know, spring for the more expensive devices and, and the containers. But one of the things I tell people about is if you're going to use a container, even if it's a stock pot, you still need to have it covered if you're going to do longer cooks, anything over two hours. Uh, and the reason by that is why? Because of all the evaporation, it's yeah, I use a lid all the time. And like I said, saran wrap can work fine. You just need to cover it because you're not going to run into issues like you're saying on a shorter cook. But if you're cooking for a long period of time, the water is evaporating. And especially if you do some more barbecue temperatures, like in the 150s, 160s, you can lose half an inch or an inch of water per hour. And if you're trying to cook it overnight or you're not around to refill it, you're just the water level can get too low. The sous vide machine won't have enough water or turn off and then your food's going to be ruined. So better safe than sorry, just cover it. And it prevents a lot of the evaporation. And it also makes it heat faster because you get a nice air cushion there and it just works a lot more efficiently. Yeah. And a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the sous vide circulators, you know, they have a heating element in there that's designed to be in, you know, heat the water, and keep that heating element at a certain temperature. If you remove the water, the heating element goes higher, and it, it, it really uh, hurts the uh, functionality of the sous vide circulator, so it can damage it. So if there's no water there, it'll usually automatically shut off, and you don't want that because if you're doing an overnight cook especially, you know, if it shuts off in the middle of the night, you don't know how long that's been sitting there in water that's uh, now no longer in the safe zone. And... Um, now you have issues with your with your food being contaminated. And if you're cooking something bigger, if you're doing a pork shoulder or a brisket, it's going to fill up 
the container that you're using. And you might have an inch at the top of leeway to keep everything underwater because the water, like we were discussing earlier, the water transmits the energy very efficiently. So the food has to be underwater. So even if your machine doesn't shut off, but you lose an inch or two of water level, you could have the top, you know, inch or so of your brisket or pork shoulder sitting out of the water for hours without realizing it. And that's just going to lead to bacterial growth and it's not a good situation. So yeah, I agree completely with you. You should always cover your sous vide machine. I do it even on short cooks just because it's habit now, but it's, it's very important. And here's another question that gets asked all the time, especially people who are just starting out because most people, believe it or not, don't have a vacuum sealer in their house. You know, a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't. And uh, so people ask all the time, do I need a vacuum sealer to cook sous vide? So the, the phrase sous vide means under pressure. And there was a name for that because a lot of the food was cooked in a vacuum. And that's because originally it was, came from a lot of industrial cooking, especially of roast beef, to try to maximize the moisture. And so they just named it that because it was simple and easy, and it described what the process was. But the having an actual vacuum isn't important to the sous vide process at all. All that matters is getting out most of the air so the water is in very close proximity to the food. Because if you have uh, a steak in a bag that has a bunch of air in it, that air is, again, not going to transmit the energy, and it's going to screw up a lot of the cooking times and make an unsafe environment. So you just need to get rid of the majority of the air. It doesn't have to be a, a true vacuum or using a chamber vacuum sealer. If you put a steak in a Ziploc bag and you put that Ziploc bag into the water with a corner not sealed and you leave that corner out of the water, the water is going to shove all the air out of the Ziploc bag and it's going to be almost as good as a vacuum. So that's how I cooked for the first three years I was sous eating was using Ziploc brand freezer bags that I put it in, put it in the water that pushes the air out and you can seal that corner and you're good to go. So you don't need a vacuum sealer. I have a, a really nice chambered sealer now that's uh, it's from Backmaster and I love it and I use it constantly. But I if it broke, I don't think I would spend another eight hundred dollars to replace it. But it's so start off easy. Use those Ziploc bags or um, other similar bags that are food and heat safe and it'll be a lot easier. I think you'll be happier in the long run. Yeah, I think I agree with you 100%. The vacuum sealer itself is more of a convenience than a necessity. And I did too. I started out using, uh, you know, uh, Ziploc freezer bags. And I always suggest if you're going to use, not use a vacuum sealer, but at least use a uh, freezer bag, food safe freezer bag. Don't use, you know, the storage bags. Don't use the really thin sandwich bags because they're just not going to tolerate the heat. Uh, and a lot of times too, you got to make sure that the, the freezer bags are completely, you know, watertight because I, I've had instances where, you know, you find out after the fact that there was a small hole in the bottom of it somehow, and then it water got in and now you got a soggy piece of meat. So, um, usually the, the Ziploc thicker Ziploc freezer bags are, uh, you know, work really well. But, um, one of the other things that I've, I've started to do lately, that's kind of a pro tip, I think is that the Ziploc bags do work well, but like you're saying, especially if you're cooking vegetables or at some of the hotter temperatures, they're not the bags themselves aren't quite as good. What you can do is you can actually buy the vacuum chamber sealer bags. They're 
very inexpensive. You generally have to get like one to 500 of them, but they're much, much cheaper than even Ziploc bags. And they're rated for uh, higher temperatures. Most of the time, you don't even need to seal the bag. If you bend over the top of the bag when you put your food in to make sure none of the food touches um, the top of the bag, you can have it draped over the outside as long as the food itself and the part of the bag it touched is underwater. So you can use the the better, higher quality bags and just use something like magnets to hold it down or a sous vide weight to keep it, make sure everything stays underwater and just keep the top out um, out of the water bath. So that's a way that you can still use some of the less expensive but higher quality uh, chambered bags without even having to worry about using a sealer on them. Yeah, that's a great tip as well, um, especially, like I said, on somebody that's fairly new to it that doesn't want to, you know, uh, spend the money on all sorts of fancy equipment that they wouldn't use otherwise. I happen to use a va- my vacuum sealer all the time for storing meat because you know, I've got you know, a family of four and we have people over all the time. So I buy meat in bulk. So using a vacuum sealer to, you know, keep my meat from getting freezer burn and all that. uh, I use it a lot more for that. Uh, And I also, you know, I'm able to break down the bigger pieces of meat, season them up, vacuum seal them in individual dinner size portions, and then just toss them in my sous vide. So it makes a lot more, uh, a lot more of a convenience for me than, uh, anything else so it's not really uh, a need it just makes everything more convenient so let's move on to how do i determine the time and temp i use for sous vide the the most popular question in i think every sous vide group how long and how hot should i cook x right that's what everyone asks there's a lot that goes into determining the time and temperature but there's a few guidelines i think that I talk about. Um, You want to keep the, for the time, you have three different goals that you can be using when you're using sous vide or when you're cooking pretty much anything. The one is to heat it through. And you would use this for tender cuts of meat that you just, you would normally throw on the grill and cook quickly, you know, a flank steak or pork chops, something like that. The second is a little bit of a longer cook, and that's when you're going to pasteurize it and you're going to make it safe. And so this would be chicken breast. You need to cook it long enough or hot enough for it to become safe to eat because it's not safe to start with. And then the third thing that you can do by cooking is tenderizing it. And this is going to be your tougher cuts that you want to break down. Traditionally, these are normally braised, right? You don't braise for an hour or a half hour. You braise for three, four, seven hours till it gets tender. And the same is with sous vide. You can take something like a, a chuck roast And if you cook it for two hours, it's going to be heated through. It's still going to be really, really tough to eat. If you cook it for four hours, it's now going to be completely pasteurized and be safe all the way through. And it's, you know, someone that's immunocompromised or pregnant can now eat that and it's going to be completely safe. But it's still going to be really tough and chewy. If you cook it for 36 hours, it's now going to be fall apart tender and really delicious. So that's kind of what you should think about when you're looking at the time. Am I trying to just heat this? Am I trying to pasteurize it and make it safe? Or am I trying to tenderize this piece of meat to kind of change the texture of it over time? Yeah, and I've seen, and and there's plenty of online guides and some guides that come with, you know, these sous vide circulators when you buy them. And um, 
you know, then like with Anova and uh, Jewel, they have, you know, their apps that have recipes in there built in that kind of help you. But all of them, you know, can be different. I mean, I've, I've looked at like the Anova app on a, let's say a medium rare steak compared to the Jewel app and the times and temps, you know, can be slightly different. And like you said, one of the things, you know, your online uh, time and temp guide, I use a lot and uh, I'll have a link to that below in the description. Jason's got a very comprehensive uh, online time temp guide. And I like it because it gives a range of times and temps, you know, for uh, what you're looking to do. And like you said, there's several different reasons why you need, you know, what you're, what you're looking at, you know, the, the temperature is a given, you know, if you want your steak medium rare, here's what the temperature, your finished temperature should be for medium rare. But that other stuff that you want to incorporate, pasteurization, tenderness, and all that, that sous vide can do. And um, that's what you got to look at. And sometimes it takes playing around with the different guides even to kind of make it to your own personal preference. Do you agree? Yeah, I definitely agree. There's a lot of variety out there. And I think one of the things that people forget is because sous vide creates completely consistent results where other cooking methods don't, no matter how good you are at a grill, probably unless you're a professional chef, you're introducing uh, variability into the process. You know, if I gave you the exact same cut of meat and you cooked it five times, each one would probably turn out a little bit different. Where with sous vide, they're going to turn out the exact same. So some of the differences are more pronounced. The example I like to use is a strip steak. Strip steak is one of my favorite steaks if it's a prime strip steak. Because it has good fatty flavor. It's nice and beefy. It's pretty easy to cook. It's on the less expensive side of the of the really good cuts. But if I take a select strip steak, it's tough and dry and has almost no flavor and that's just in the different grades of meat or if you take like a a ribeye a select ribeye is still gonna be pretty fatty and be pretty good and it's gonna taste a lot better than a uh, select strip does so i think that's um, just you have to look at the the differences in the different animals like is it grass-fed or is it uh, grain finished because that's going to change the texture and how it turns out and so when people think well sous vide's very precise that i can say i can cook this at 131 and based on the thickness i need to cook this for an hour and you know 16 minutes and it's going to be cooked through and they see that precision and think well i should do that every time i cook a strip steak But it's going to really depend if you're doing prime strip or choice or select or if it's grass fed or pasture raised or is it American or Argentinian or a Wagyu. Like all these different variables go into it that go into every type of cooking, but we don't think about it normally when we're going to grill a steak. So there is a lot of variability in the guides out there. And I think that's why it's important to understand why the guides are saying what they are, not the specifics of what they're saying. But if a Nova says, you know, you should cook a strip steak at 130 for two hours and the Jewel says it should be 132 for three hours, why are they suggesting those? Because when I look at that, and I'm sure when you look at that, Darren, you think, yeah, those are, they're basically saying the exact same thing. A medium rare temperature you like for a long enough time to heat it through. 
So I think understanding the why of a lot of these guides is the the important thing. And that's why I try to explain to people is here is where the time and temperatures come from. And now you understand what people are doing. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things I think, like you said, when you're new and you're trying to wrap your head around it, because Subi can be a little confusing to people. And especially when they see these different time and temps, you know, from different places. But um, it's also goes back to what you're saying. Now, what am I attempting to do with this particular cut of meat? Am I trying to make it more tender? So that's where the time comes in to where it can be more of a personal preference. You know, if I go 24 hours on a chuck roast, it's not quite as tender than if I go 36. So, you know, is it going to be, you know, cooked and everything else at 24? Yeah, but it might not be at the tenderness that I personally like. Somebody might go, well, I prefer it at 24 hours because it's got that little bit of bite left to it. It's not, you know, you know, like a filet, it's more, you know, gives, gives me a little bit more, you know, firmness, but I might like 36 and there's people that might like 48. So that's the thing that really brought it home to me is that you can adjust the times and temps to personalize what you personally like. That's not like saying you have to cook, you know, a chuck roast at 134 degrees at 24 hours and that's it. It's well, if you like it that way, but if you like it a little bit more tender, go out to, uh, you know, 48 hours, you know, and all that. So it's, that's one of the things that I try to instill in people, you know, you can play with these on your own, as long as you're using that, um, you know, basic guide, like you were talking about knowing what the, what the, what the temperature, uh, relates to and what the time. Yeah, I agree to. completely with that. And when you're looking at temperatures, I think it's important to realize that, Meat behaves, you know, this is a group for uh, smoking as well as sous vide. So I think there's going to be a, a larger base knowledge here than in um, some other, uh, some other, you know, groups of cooks. But people don't always realize that the temperature really can affect the, the texture of meat. You know, when you smoke a pork shoulder to a higher temperature, it's changing that texture compared to like a pork chop. So when you're looking at time or at temperatures, I like to break it down into two types of temperatures. The first is what I call steak-like or chop-like temperatures. And this is pretty much anything below 145 or 150. So for steaks, it's normally going to be the standard medium rare at 130 to 135. You can argue about the ranges where specifically they are, but in general, medium rares around that range, mediums 135 to 140, or medium wells about up to 145. So if you want something that's going to taste like a steak, you can cook it at whatever temperature you like, how you normally like steaks or pork. I like medium rare for, so I do 131 normally for my steak and for pork and chicken, I do 140. And then the other type of temperature is what I call braised like temperatures. And if you think about a normal pot roast or pulled pork, that's a braised-like temperature. It has a completely different texture and consistency than a steak or a pork chop does. And these temperatures start to come in above about 150, 155. So I like to say there's three different kind of guideposts that I use if you want a braised-like food. I go to 156. And this is just starting to become braised-like. The gelatin is just starting to break down, and it's those types of ribs that you 
you know, eat off the bone and you chew them and they're not falling apart, but they have that kind of like, they're starting to fall apart a little bit, just a tad. They're not chewy, but they're not this kind of like shreddable fall apart. 165 is the next one. And at that point, they're starting to break down a little bit more. They can pull off the bone. You can probably still sear them or throw them on the grill uh, if you're careful, but they're definitely starting to pull apart a lot more. And then at 176 is the highest that I normally go. And at that temperature, it's, you know, you reach into the bag to pull out your pork shoulder and you get a quarter of it because it's just fall apart tender and it's broken down kind of all that connective tissue. So I think looking at those three types of temperatures, a steak-like or one of the three braised-likes can put you in the ballpark of what you're looking at. So a lot of people go online and they say, okay, I want to cook a chuck roast. And they see 131 for 36 hours and they see 165 for 12 hours and they go, well, I should average this out. And then they write in and say, the sous vide didn't work because the chuck roast was dry. I cooked it at 148 degrees for 20 hours. And you're like, you basically just made well done steak that wasn't cooked long enough to even tenderize it. So you can't average out a lot of this stuff um, in between the two groups. And that's kind of how I approach looking at temperature that decide what dish you're looking to do. Do you want it to be, you know, shreddable pulled pork or do you want it to be, you know, pulled pork that has more, more of a chopped pork that's has a little bit of bite, but still is broken down and nice and moist. Or do you want that pork shoulder to taste like a pork chop? Because you can do that with sous vide and cook it at a real low temperature for a long period of time. And it's going to be completely tender, but it's not going to taste anything like pulled pork does. Yeah, and I see that a lot in the Facebook groups, especially with um, people trying to cook a brisket flat. Because what they end up doing is not cooking it long enough and they say it's dry. And it's like, well, you you didn't cook it long enough at that temperature, you know, the lower temperature to break down the collagen and the connective tissue that is really what makes that brisket juicy. It's not the fat or the moisture that's in the meat a lot of times on on those types of meats. It's when that connective tissue and the collagen melt and turn into, you know, that juiciness that you that you get. So I always end up telling people, you know, you okay, you, you had the right idea, but you just if you would have took it a little bit longer as far as time goes or adjusted that temperature a little bit here or there, then it would have broke down that collagen and the connective tissue more to get that juiciness. And once you, you know, I explain it to, especially to the people that are used to smoking, you know, using their, their, their smoker, the reason you need to take a brisket or pork butt to over 200 degrees, usually when you're smoking it is just for that reason. That's where, on a traditional cook where the the collagen and the connective tissue breaks down and it makes it tender and juicy. And yeah. I think apart. it's important to remember that we, we conceptualize temperature and how it relates to time a lot. And we, but we don't think about it too much that we go like, Oh yeah, if I'm going to pan fry something or grill something, it goes a lot quicker than it does. If I'm going to, um, uh, like braise something. And then if I pressure cook it, you know, that speeds it up, but we don't really 
think about why why does a pressure cooker cook so much faster than a braise does and why does that cook faster than just having something in the oven does if you're doing the same type of meat and it comes down to temperature the higher the temperature the faster things break down and the more fully it breaks down so pressure cooker cooks a lot faster so you can you know make pulled pork in a pressure cooker in 60 minutes where if you're going to braise it in the oven it's going to take four or five hours and if you go down even a lower temperature and you're now smoking it it could take you know six to eight hours and the same thing with sous vide that when you continue dropping that temperature if you're down to 140 it's going to take a lot lot longer to tenderize that food the same way that it would at um, a higher temperature so it's just important to remember that when you see time and temperatures yeah if i do a pork shoulder at 176 it's going to take maybe 12 hours. And if I do that same pork shoulder at 140, it's going to take probably 36 hours or uh, 48 hours because it's a lower temperature and it's breaking stuff down much more slowly. Exactly. Well, we're going to take a quick break here and um, we will be back in just one minute and we'll go into some more stuff with Jason Logston from Amazing Food Made Easy. Hey all, I want to welcome again Inkbird as our sponsor for the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Inkbird has more than just barbecue thermometers and instant read thermometers that I've talked about before. Inkbird just came out with a Wi-Fi sous vide circulator that I've been using for a few weeks now that works pretty good. Has over 1,000 watts of power. Has a app that has many times and temps for meats and vegetables. Also has onboard times and temps for meats and vegetables. Runs really quiet. Fits most regular sous vide containers that are the size of the Anovas. So check it out. Look below. There's a link with a code for 30% off of the Amazon price that makes it under $60 right now. So check out the Inkbird Wi-Fi sous vide circulator in the description below. Back to our program. All right, we're back with Jason, and we're going to pick up where we left off. I want to talk about another thing that comes up a lot, especially with people that just start doing sous vide, is food safety. How can we cook in temperatures that are under the recommended uh, USGA or FDA or whatever guidelines of safe cooking? So we don't cook under those regulations. We cook under the regulations that have been popularized out there. The same FDA regulations that state chicken has to be cooked to 160 degrees generally actually clarify that that is for uh, a few milliseconds. But if you cook it longer at a lower temperature, you get the same pasteurization. So the way that pasteurization and food safety actually works is that above a certain temperature, which is about 125 to 127 degrees, the the bad pathogens start to die. And it again, it happens much, much more slowly at a low temperature than a hot temperature. You know, in this is a kind of morose analogy, but you know, as the temperature starts to get hotter in certain cities like in Arizona and Florida, if they have heat waves that are 110, people start to that aren't in good health can start to die. And it's a bad situation. But if it was 200 degrees out, you know, healthy people would be dying. And it's the same thing with the bacteria and the pathogens, that the hotter the temperature get, the faster that they die. 
So if you cook a chicken breast at uh, 140 degrees and you cook it for, I think it's about an hour and a half, you will actually make it just as safe to eat as if you cook it at 160 degrees for a millisecond. So it takes a long period of time, but you're still killing the exact same amount of the pathogens and the bacteria. So that's how the food safety comes into it. It seems counterintuitive because using traditional methods, it's really hard to hold a chicken breast on the grill at exactly 140 degrees. And most of the regulations are for restaurants that before sous vide was out there. And so they're for a lot of people that if you work, you know, the line at Chili's, they make the recommendation so that high school student won't make everyone sick. So a lot of people just point to that and say, well, it says 160. And it's like, well, that's also where we got our data from was from the exact same report that um, the 160 came from. But they also talk about longer times equal just as safe with lower temperatures. Yeah. And one of the things I always point to, um, you know, especially because you, you, you always know when somebody is just now looking at um, sous vide is when they bring this up and they always throw up the government guidelines. Well, it's got, you know, the government says it's like, well, you, the, the person who actually started, you know, sous vide was a food scientist. And if anybody's going to know what's safe or not, it's going to be a guy that that's his p- profession is, you know, food science. And, you know, then you throw up the Baldwin, you know, charts and everything. And those can be a little bit because, you know, Baldwin does go into a lot of detail and stuff, you know, but, you know, those are great to show people here. If you want to take the time and understand really why it's safe, you need to go look at this stuff. But then again, you know, these big, huge companies that are making these sous vide circulators and putting these guidelines out there are not going to try to get people sick and die, you know? Uh, <laughs> so there, there's a lot of science behind it. If you want to take the time and, and learn it, you know, a lot of it can get monotonous and put you to sleep, but believe me, you know, it's, it's safe. So. Yeah. You know, Crea did a lot of the work and cuisine solutions did a lot of the work on the safety of sous vide and the different temperatures. And they provide all the chicken to Panera. Like if it's not safe, you know, Panera is not going to be getting out, you know, millions and millions of chicken breasts a year from a company. And there have been a lot more incidences of people getting sick at these lower temperatures. And I don't think they go down to 140 because they go from higher, drier, so it tastes more traditional. But they're definitely not at, you know, 160 or 165 like a lot of places are. Yeah. And I, I always bring up how many times have you heard in the news where people are getting sick from sous vide cooking as opposed to romaine lettuce? <laughs> the scourge <laughs> you know, of, you, of health. You never, <laughs> romaine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh my God, you know, Chipotle, you know, they're getting people, they're killing people with their romaine lettuce. It's not that they, you know, used sous vide yeah. cooking. <laughs> so, um, you know, you just hardly, you, you never hear about it. I mean, because it is, uh, if you use the guidelines right, you know, you're not going to get sick. So let's let's keep going a little bit. I, I want to say, talk about if I could some of the really quick. I, I do want to say that with yeah, food safety, the the most important thing to realize is that the stuff does start to die. The bad stuff dies above one twenty five, one twenty seven. But you should be careful that your circulator is supposed to be within half a degree, but it might not be if you haven't calibrated it. There might be a slight you know variation in the water. So I always cook personally at 130 or above. So that way it gives me a lot more um, leeway if something's a little bit off or if the food was a little colder. And this matters for 
cooks that are longer than two to three hours. You can cook a rare steak in sous vide at 120 if you want for a few hours. But at that temperature, you're incubating bacteria. You're not actually killing it or making it safe for eat, which can be fine for a steak, especially if you sear it. It's not a big deal. But if you're doing, you can't just say, well, I like rare meat. And so I did a you know, a strip steak for two hours at 120. Now I'm going to do a chuck roast, but that cooks for 36 hours. So I'll do that at 120 because that's the equivalent or probably even worse than just leaving the steak on your counter for 36 hours. You're not cooking it. You're not killing anything. You're providing a really nice warm temperature for the bacteria to thrive. So make sure with safety that if you're going to cook below I say 130 to be safe, but 125, 127, if you're going to cook below that, don't do it for more than two to four hours. And you'll be fine if it's for a short time. But if you're doing a longer cook, you have to go a higher temperature that you're going to be killing that the bacteria that are in it. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I do. I see people all the time, you know, get freaked out because somebody's cooking at 125 for two hours and it's like uh, two hours is fine at that. But once you go longer, that's that you're giving that, uh, you know, you're giving the, uh, the bacteria time to grow and, uh, two hours is not enough time for, you know, bacteria doesn't grow in an instant or, you know, it, it, you can't, if you leave a steak out on your, uh, countertop for, you know, 10 minutes, it's not now covered with flaming bacteria and you can't <laughs> eat it. I mean, it, there is a time factor involved in that as well. So let's uh, let's talk about some of the commonly asked questions that uh, people come in, and there's some of these have some uh, you know, people, even people that are experienced have their opinions on this stuff. But it's you know all personal opinion. But should I season before I put it in the bag or after it comes out of the bag? Definitely personal opinion for a lot of people. I it depends what you're trying to accomplish. If I just want a light seasoning that kind of coats the outside, I'll season before I sous vide. It is going to be sitting in its own juices, so it will lose some of that flavor. Just like if you're doing a braise, you you know some of the flavor comes off the outside of the meat. And some spices and seasonings don't do quite as well during sous vide, especially raw garlic or onion. They're, you're not cooking at a high enough temperature, so you're imparting the flavor of raw garlic or onion, not the nice nutty flavors you normally associate with cooking. And if I'm trying to do something that's more like a blackened food or something that uh, a nice spice rub for uh, a steak or for ribs, I'll season after the sous vide process and bef before I sear often. But you want to make sure because you're searing at high temperatures that some of the spices can burn. You're cooking at the hottest temperature you can get generally when you're trying to sear it at the end because you want it to be really quick. And some spices burn at those temperatures. So you can even put it on after the sear um, in some cases as well. Yeah. And my thought is when I first started, you know, playing around with CV and getting in some of these groups, it, it kind of blew my mind that this was a controversy. You know, there's one particular group where the guy who runs a group, I mean, he's very dead set against on, you know, <laughs> seasoning it in the bag for some reason and thinking that people think that it penetrates deep into the meat which i never thought i never thought of um most regular cooking methods if you're roasting uh frying or you know uh searing you know just cooking a steak on the grill you always season it before you start cooking it even though you're cooking it in a bag and it's going to have its own juices that are going to you know remove some of that from the surface you're still seasoning that purge and it's 
turning it into more of like uh, like a marinade. It's it's coating the surface evenly with that you know seasoning that is now incorporated into the liquid. You know, uh, to me, and then I always put a little bit more on after the fact. You know, so I, I just, it just always blew my mind that there was this controversy of seizing before or after and then people are just so did set on one or the other i do a little bit before and a little bit after and it's perfect for my, for me so um and like you said it, it's going to boil down the personal preference but if you got to get that nitty-gritty onto something as, as silly as this i mean do it however you want but neither one of them's wrong you know it's not a wrong process to season before and then or season after or do yep, a little bit i agree completely that it's a lot comes down to personal preference and do what makes you happy. <laughs> you know what? That's my theory for a lot exactly. of the sous vide cooking is that, you know, do what makes you happy and follow what you're interested in. If you're, if you're cooking above 127 <laughs> for long cooks, that's all that really matters when it comes down to it. Everything else is, you know, taste and preference. So do do what you enjoy doing. And if you think you can taste the difference or if you think it adds something by putting herbs in the bag or spices or even, you know, I never put butter in with steak. Uh, I put it on afterwards, but some people love putting the butter in when they sous vide. And like, if that makes you happy, then do it. And who cares what someone else is saying? As long as you're following the safety guidelines, it doesn't matter. Right. And I'm going to have another episode with a couple other people and we're going to discuss some of the advanced uh, sous vide methods and some of the things like that, butter in the bag and, and herbs in the bag. We're going to discuss, you know, why it's a good idea, why it's not a good idea, uh, but it's all still going to boil down to personal preference. I mean, there are reasons why this works or that works or not to do this or do that, but it's all personal. You can still do whatever you want. It's like any cooking method out there, you know, you, you like barbecue. You can put the sauce on before you take them off the grill or you put them on after. It's, you know, personal preference. So, all right, let's move on and go, uh, can I cook different foods at the same time in the same water? You can if they are cooked at the same temperature which a lot of foods aren't because a lot of people want to cook the vegetables at the same time as the steak. They, you know, they are rarely making pork chops and chicken for a party, which those two you can cook in the same water bath because they both cook at 140 degrees. So if you find foods that are at the same temperature, perfect. If you do want vegetables and a meat, you can cook the vegetables at the higher temperature, the 183, 185 that they're normally cooked at. And most vegetables won't continue tenderizing or cooking if you drop the temperature. So you can cook the vegetables first, drop the temperature down to the 131 for the steak, and then you can leave them in the sous vide machine for the hour or two that the steak cooks, and they won't end up being overcooked in most cases. But you need to find things that cook at the same temperature. Otherwise, you can't use the same water bath. Yeah, and I think that's another thing people you know, if they're cooking on their grill, you know, they're used to throwing, you know, the you know, the vegetables or potatoes or something on the grill when they're cooking the meat, because you are cooking at this, you know, a hot, lot hotter temperature. But with, since you are doing a precision temperature cooking, it's a lot different. You know, like you said, the steaks, the proteins, the chicken cooks at a lot lower temperature than your vegetables will cook at. So instead of you cooking at a 250 to 350 degree grill or oven, you know, where you're throwing everything in there and it's all cooking at the same really hot temperature where all that food will actually cook. If you're cooking at 132 degrees on a steak, that's not going to do anything to your vegetables. They could sit in there for 
10 hours and you pull them out and there's still nothing, nothing has changed with them. <laughs> they're still hard. So, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that people just, you know, they have a hard time wrapping their heads around. So like you said, if you're going to, you want to cook your vegetables, which I love cooking vegetables, sous vide, either get another, you know, sous vide uh, set up and, um, you know, use another sous vide setup, or you can use the same bath, but cook those first, lower the temperature, keep those vegetables in there at the lower temperature because it's going to keep them nice and, and warm. And then they're not going to overcook because they don't cook at that low temperature. It's just going to keep them nice and warm and then, and finish up, uh, your protein. So exactly. All right. Here's a big one. This gets asked daily. And sometimes it's, I scratch my head on why people would do this. Can I cook in the store packaging? <laughs> Always a favorite. So the general answer is like the specific answer is it depends on the type of plastic used in the packaging and the sealing method. So if you're a plastic expert and you want you know where to find those markings on the package, you can look it up and make sure that they're food and heat safe packaging, which a lot of stuff isn't. My general answer to this is I never do it because I'd like to season it. So, you know, add a little bit of salt, at least, if not a spice rub or something. And a lot of the packages have you know, labels and price tags and, uh, you know, marketing on the outside of the packages that aren't supposed to be in hot water. And especially with the circulator, it can remove those labels sometimes and then pull it into the the propeller. And then you have to open up your sous vide machine to, to clean it. A, a lot of people do cook in the store packaging and they don't give a second thought to it. And if it works for you and you're fine with understanding if it's a safe plastic to use or not use, then fine, go for it. But my general recommendation is always take it out, add some seasoning to it and put it in a new bag. It's going to take you all of two minutes to do that. And you're, it's going to be a smoother, easier cook in the long term. Yeah. And I always point out a couple other things is how many times have I put something in my refrigerator to thaw that's in the original store packaging that, you know, when it gets thawed out, there's, you know, liquid from that thaw all over the place that, you know, there's some kind of pinhole in in the packaging that you can't really see with your naked eye that, um, and now it's leaked all over your refrigerator. You got to clean it up. Plus you don't know if that meat, you know, since if, if it's in a cryo pack, if it's good, you can't smell it. <laughs> Usually <laughs> you have no way to season that, that particular meat. If you want to season it before you cook it. Um, there, there's so many reasons not to do it. Uh, and most of the people, you know, I think that are asking that question is that I don't know if they want to save that extra 10 cents that it's going to cost to put it in a new bag or just that extra five seconds that <laughs> it's going to take them to, to remove it from one bag and put it in the other. I just, it just boggles my mind because there's, there's so many reasons to not do it. And maybe only one or two that you would actually think of that they would do it, you know, the reason they would do it. Uh, I mean, they could have one of those little, you know, absorbent pads that they usually stick in some of these meat, you know, uh, packages that you can't really see, you know, the labeling, the, you know, like I said, the, it could have a pinhole that you don't know about. You don't know the type of plastic. I mean, there's so many reasons not to do it. I just don't understand the question, but my, <laughs> my, my, my answer is always, why would you do it in the first place? Just don't do it. You got a lot more flexibility. You can see if your meat's bad by smelling it. You can season it up. 
You can make sure the packaging is is not going to leak on you and, and have water in the bag. There's just so many benefits of not doing it in the store packaging. So, Yep, I agree. All right, so let's. Uh, I'm going to skip a couple that I had listed here because I think we're we're getting close on time here, and I don't want to go three hours. We could <laughs> probably go all we could probably go all day into some of this stuff. So um, let's let's talk about searing for a little bit because I think a lot of people. That's some of the things that they can get kind of when they're new. They can get kind of uh, tripped up on is you know when when we sear coming out of a sous vide bag, we usually have to you know dry the surface off before we do that why, why would we do that so the way the sear so the way that the sear works is that you put it on you put the meat on a hot surface and it basically browns the outside of it and before it can brown it has to boil off all the water that's on the surface and while that water is boiling off it's transmitting heat through the inside of the food which when you're doing a pan sear isn't a big deal because you're starting from a cold steak and it can help, you know, more evenly cook a little bit. But with sous vide, your food is already perfectly cooked. And so you want that sear to be as quick as possible, like 60 seconds, maybe 90 seconds per side if you're straight out of the bag and that's it. And so if the water is um, on the outside, it's going to brown much slower because there's water that has to be boiled off. And that's going to lead to overcooking the inside of your sous vide food that you just spent time perfectly cooking. So drying it off is probably the most critical thing you can do when you're searing. You can use paper towels. I have some dishcloths that are I only use to dry off my sous vide food, so I'm not using paper all the time. Uh, just dry it off, you know, pat it dry, make sure it's really good and there's not moisture on the outside and you're going to get a lot better sears, a lot harder sears, and you're not going to overcook the inside of your food much at all. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I tell people, there's a difference between when you're searing something like a steak or a chicken breast, than when you're smoking something like a, a, you know, a pork butt or a brisket, because when you're smoking, you want a little moisture on that, um, piece of meat to make the smoke stick to the outside because that's where the benefit of smoking comes from is the moisture capturing the smoke particles and adhering them to the uh to the meat and building a bark and and you know smoke is mostly a you know a surface treatment like any other kind of seasoning it doesn't go all the way into the center of the meat i don't care what people say there's been lots of studies and and um you know articles written about that that show that so it's kind of the reverse you know when you're searing and you want that Maillard reaction you know from a steak you need to dry it off but if you're smoking and you want that bark that you would get norm from a normal smoke uh, cook you you have some moisture on there and even spritz it every once in a while that's one of the reasons why even when barbecue pit masters are cooking you know traditionally they spritz their meat you know every hour or so to develop the bark and the uh, smoke profile on the food yeah, I think that's a great point is that when you're finishing, I think it's good to know what you're trying to accomplish. And if you have uh, a ribeye, you're trying to accomplish something different than you are with a pork shoulder. And with something like, like a fatty cut with a ribeye, you might be trying to accomplish something that's different than, say, uh, a filet mignon. Like with ribeye, I usually chill it for in, a, in an ice bath for about five to ten minutes before I sear because I want 
to do a longer sear. There's enough fat on it that I want to break that down and render it some. So I chill it first and then I sear it and it gives a really good hard sear where with a filet, there's no fat on the outside to render. So you can just go, you know, straight from the sous vide to a hot pan and you're going to, after drying it off and you'll be completely fine. But it's starting to understand what, what the different processes add to the flavor profile and, uh, to the final dish that you're trying to create. And then you can make some of these decisions for yourself and not just read three people arguing about it online. Exactly. <laughs> All right, let's go to the last one here. And um, this one comes up a lot as well. What should I do with the juices that are left in the bag? I don't want to dump them down the sink all the time. So this has been a big discussion lately. I've been involved in, I think, three different discussions around juices in the bag. So there's a few different things you can do with it. One is if you're doing a stir fry or a risotto or pretty much anything that you add liquid to, you can, I'll often just pour them into there. They work good. They add flavor. You're getting some of the beefiness into it. The, a lot of people like making gravies and pan sauces with juices when you cook traditionally, but the biggest issue is sous vide juices at most temperatures, especially the lower ones, is that none of the proteins have kind of coagulated and broken apart like they would at a higher normal traditional cook. So if you try to make a pan sauce by putting in the, the juices, they just kind of form this gray clump at the top. And the gray clump actually has a lot of flavor in it. It just looks really bad. I know Grant Crilly from Chef Steps, he recommended that he pours the juices into a pan. He cooks them until all the water evaporates out. And then he cooks the kind of coagulated top and pan fries it till it browns. And then he uses that as a topping for a lot of his dishes. Some people will boil it and skim off the top of the, the proteins that coagulate. And then they can use, you can then use the liquid more like you would a traditional pan sauce, but you are losing some of the flavor from the proteins you've skimmed off. My general approach is that if I want to do a traditional pan sauce or I want to make a traditional gravy, I use uh, a good stock. I'll make a lot of homemade stocks. And if I want a good, you know, beef and red wine reduction, I'll use some beef stock and just make the reduction from that. And I'll use the juices for something else that can mix in and won't really affect the texture much. Yeah, I use it occasionally for uh, if I'm making a gravy or if I want to make a, a, a pan sauce. And I'll usually do, like you say, I will heat it up either in a pan or in the microwave. I've seen people do that a lot, too, where it coagulates those proteins and you skim it off. And, um, yeah, I've seen people try to use it with, you know, <laughs> try to make like a, a gravy out of it before they got the uh, proteins out. And it's like, well, this is all like the mouth feels not right and everything. It's like, well, yeah, you had to, uh, you know, get rid of those proteins first. If you, if you want to use it as a, you know, to make a gravy or something right away or a pan sauce. But, um, I've never heard of that. I have to look that up with grant, uh, actually cooking that down and, and, um, using that as a topping. I've never really thought of that myself and, and I've never really seen it. I have to look that up, but I guess that's another idea what you can do yeah. with them. So, I mean, I know like people like Guga, they save them and they use them, you know, they'll boil it off and um, boil out the proteins and save it like they do beef stock or, or chicken stock. They'll, they'll just use it any way that, you know, to make sauces and, and gravies and, and soups and everything like that. But 
I guess it, it all depends on what you want to do with it. And um, like you said, you know, um, you know, you can toss it if you want to, but if you can use it, uh, you know, you don't have to. There's many different ways you can you can use those juices. And I think sure. one of the things with sous vide that people forget for all the stuff we're talking about that's personal preference is that sous vide is incredible for making high end gourmet food, and sous vide is incredible for making middle of the weekday food prepped quick and easy, but still really flavorful food. And so you have a lot of people argue about the different things and what you should do. And one of them might be making an anniversary dinner for them and their spouse. And the other person might be making cold chicken lunches for their kids to take to school. And the what you're trying to do doesn't always match between the two. So if I'm trying to make a more refined, nice meal, I'm probably not going to use the pan sauces in the rice or something like that to flavor them. But if I'm just making a normal weeknight meal, I'll pour them in. And yeah, there might be a, a clump here or there, but it's a flavorful clump and my wife doesn't care. So it's good enough for me and add some additional flavor. So I think it's worth looking at and saying, what am I trying to achieve? And doing it within the time frame that you have and in the with the end result that you're looking for. Exactly. Well, great. I think we uh, had a great discussion today and I look forward to uh, doing another one down the road because I know there's some questions we kind of um, had to skip by and there's other questions out there. Um, make sure you guys um, that are listening, uh, check out the links below to uh, amazing food made easy. Jason's website. Jason also runs another really big Facebook group called exploring sous vide one of the largest sous vide uh, Facebook groups out there. There's a lot of great uh, information there as well and a lot of interactivity. Jason's on there all the time and I'm on there all the time as well. So uh, check out the books. Uh, Jason's got several sous vide books, but he's also has, has some other modernist, modernist type cuisine books as well. Um, and uh, check out, uh, he has a, a great beginner's guide to sous vide course that I'm going to link as well. Check it out if you're a beginner. And you want to, you know, start um, your uh, sous vide cooking experience out on the right foot. Check out the uh, the uh, sous vide course that Jason has as well. Jason, thanks for being with me, and um, I look forward to having you on again. I really appreciate it. I always have a blast chatting sous vide with you. All righty, and I will see you at the sous vide um, summit in uh, August out in San Francisco. I already got my reservation, so. Awesome. Should be good. We're lining up lots of good names for speaking and it's really coming together. So it should be one heck of a party out there. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, I've, I've talked to a bunch of people that have gone uh, that went to the one uh, last year and uh, the first annual <laughs> uh, sous vide summit. And everybody says that, that attended it, uh, that it was a great time. They had a, uh, learned a lot. And that's the important thing. If you have a great time and you learn a lot, then uh, it's well worth it. So I hope to and see you, you there. a lot of good food. <laughs> a lot, a lot of good food. <laughs> now, is Craya going to be out there again um, the same way? or We're hoping to have Craya involved again. We're definitely going to have two receptions like we did last year. And we're in discussions with a few different meat companies. Last year, um, we had some just amazing meat from Allen Brothers. They provided Wagyu beef for our entire reception. And we're looking at doing something similar this year. And we have some good speakers lined up. Um, James Brizione is going to be a keynote speaker as well as Rich Rosendell. So we're looking forward to them. And then Meathead and Darren, I believe you're probably going to be speaking. Uh, Kenji's probably going to be involved. He's uh, 
committed to be at the event as well. Um, Eric Villagas. Uh, so a lot of a lot of fun people, I think, will be will be speaking and hanging out with everyone as well. I'm going to link to the uh, uh, to the CV Summit as well, the information about that, because it'll be in San Francisco in August. And if you're in that area or if you're really interested in sous vide, you need to check out the sous vide summit in August of this year. So thanks again, Jason. I look forward to talking to you again. Anything else you want to add? No, I really appreciate you having me on. Here's a blast. All righty. Thanks again. And I'll see you guys on the next Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Well, thanks again for joining us on the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Make sure you uh, check out Jason's uh, website and links to his Facebook group and the sous vide summit below. Make sure you follow us on Facebook as well, Fire and Water Cooking. Check out our YouTube channel and make sure you subscribe to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'll see you again next week.